overwhelmingly, not in every single case, you're at a juncture. You can play it safe or take a chance. People regret playing it safe more than they regret taking the chance. And, and it doesn't matter the domain of life. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from K.K. Menon, life is too short to hold regrets. My guest today, Dan Pink, would probably challenge this quote. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including A Whole New Mind, Drive, When, and his latest, The Power of Regret, which publishes the day this episode airs. Dan's also a top-rated keynote speaker and has spoken to organizations such as St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, Google, Goldman Sachs, and many more. Dan, welcome back to the Elevate Podcast. It's, uh, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you. Now let's talk about that quote, because I actually agree <laughs> with some of it and disagree with others of it. We're going to get there. So we'll, we'll work backwards uh, a little bit. So it's a few years since I've had you on. The world has changed since then as we were talking about what it's oh my like God. to publish a book during a, a, a pandemic. So uh, what's one of your most important takeaways from two years now into this uh, pandemic life? From my own perspective, I'll, I'll tell you what first came to mind because it's, it's going to be a, a, probably less profound than you might have hoped for. But it's really the importance of... of um, of taking breaks. Uh, I have been uh, working at home for 20 years. I've been social distancing for 50. So I'm used to this. Yeah. And you have a shed, right? And yet, yeah, it's a garage, a converted <laughs> garage here. And and yet it's so easy uh, when you don't have other punctuation marks in your day and your week and so forth, just to like stay here and do stuff. And it is debilitating. And, and I think that one of the reasons for the burnout is that people are not systematically taking regular breaks. And that's something that I have learned is extraordinarily, extraordinarily important. I actually think that it should be that one of the things that leaders can do in organizations is really start model taking model taking breaks and get past this heroic powering through all the time culture. It's just there's no evidence that it works. And there's a lot of evidence that breaks actually enhance our performance. Yeah, you know, we actually, for the first time ever, we closed over break. As a client service firm, we've never wanted to say that yeah. we're closed, right? I mean, most people are away and it's a quiet week, but we went to all of our clients and we were like, people are burnt out after this year and we're just closed for 10 days. And you know what? The world didn't end uh, and people came back and they were just super refreshed and calm and they just, they needed it desperately. And how did, how did the clients respond to that? Great. Like they got it. Like, yeah, if you actually, I always say that you never want to tell people what's in it for you or what's in it for them, but you know, they can barely keep their people. They don't want all their agencies, people leaving too. Right. So I think in the context of, look, people have worked hard. We have a big Q4, very e-commerce focused. And we're like, people just, they just need a, they need a, we need 10 days off. So, so actually I don't think we had anyone say anything. In fact, most yeah. were complimentary. Right. So, yeah, I, I noticed I, you know, I had a signature. I, I took a practice from Tim Ferriss on on sort of how to say no to things and you know these templates. And when I was in these phases, and I respond and say, "Look, I'm just saying no everything now, blanket or otherwise." You know, people would respond and be like, "I wish I, <laughs> I wish I could do that. I wish I wish I had written this email." You know, it's just so. I, I yeah, actually, everyone was great about it. It, it was needed, and um, I, you can see a big kind of. Uh, you can see it on people's faces coming back with some rest and relaxation. 
Yeah, that's great. And, and, you know, I hope that this is one of the practices that goes forward. And I'm not even talking about even like taking these extended 10 day breaks. I'm talking about people taking a 15 minute walk break in the afternoon. Yeah. You know, that's uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, the people are not doing enough of that. And I do. And, and I, I think of schedule. I mean, if you look at like, like I have, I have it scheduled today, a break. Yeah. Oh, if you don't schedule in the gym and breaks and stuff like yeah. that, it, it doesn't happen in the cadence. Well, that's what I was going to ask you too. I'm curious. So last time you were on, we were talking about your book, When, which you were publishing, right? Which is about allocating the right work to the right time and hacks around napping. I, and so now you have more people working remotely. Like what, what's the chapter and when you would have written if you'd written it after the pandemic or during the pandemic? You know, I, I, I might've done a, a sidebar on, you know, configuring your day for remote workers. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think that the lessons in there in that book are, are still apply, but what you had is you had in a blink of an eye, a lot of people who no longer inherited a structure of their day, but had to fashion it themselves and didn't know what they were doing. Uh, that said, there's still some of the other problems, which is that we schedule too many meetings. We, we don't respect people's time enough. We don't actually allocate. We actually, in organizations, don't allow people to do the right work at the right time. Uh, we, in my vine, we're totally over-indexed on synchronous work and under-indexed on asynchronous work. So, you know, there is, I, I guess another thing that I've noticed back to your earlier question about what did I learn from this is, is in some ways, what did I learn from 20 years of working this way, which is that yeah. the kind of a, a Zen-like paradox that structure is liberating. That you can't just, if you're working at home, you're working remotely, you can't just kind of show up and do what you feel like doing. It's not, you can't make it amorphous. You have to have some kind of a structure um, because that liberates you to do other things. You, you can't be figuring stuff out all the time. So, but, but I, and I think that ultimately we're going to end in a pretty good place because this, people are going to be able to come up with a structure that's right for them rather than simply adapt to this, the structure that's foisted on them by an organization. Yeah, if you don't put structure into that day, you don't act like one thing I think people are missing are the commutes. And I think they've needed these virtual commutes because they're sort of the thing that separates your home space from from your workspace. You know, you get up, you don't get dressed, you don't shower, you jump into four hours of meeting, you mix breakfast, then you're off for lunch, then you're too hungry to work. Like it it, it just doesn't it just doesn't work, right? You need yeah. you need to structure it and kind of interval training. And and from what I learned, particularly I, I think. I knew some when coalesced some things that I had seen or figured out, but it sort of explained the why and sort of leaning into it more, you know, for me. And I've said that, you know, if you have three of these one hour podcasts in a row, then you got to schedule like a walk or something right afterwards. Like if you don't pay attention to that, then, and, and you've got a fifth one 20 minutes later, you'll be, you'll just be exhausted. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, so, you know, structure is, you know, you got to have a little bit of structure uh, because it liberates you to do your, your, your main work. And I've always believed again, 20 years of working at home, I sort of came around to this idea of, of a soft separation between work and home. So I actually work in a garage. It's refurbished. I have a 22 step commute out my back door, but even that soft separation is, is really helpful. I actually very rarely bring my laptop on which I'm talking to you right now into the house because, yeah. uh, and so even if you don't, you know, if you, if one has less space, dedicating a particular spot and area for your work rather than having it spread all over the place, I, we, we need a little, you know, there's a there's an, a unity and there's an affinity between work and home. There always has been, in some ways, this incredible separation is artificial, but I don't, I think it a, a fully blended work and home is sometimes people need greater boundaries than that. 
Yeah, they, they need that separation. They need it for themselves. They need it to other people in the house. Like Absolutely. I noticed yesterday. I noticed Absolutely. yesterday. You know, when I take my laptop and I float down to the kitchen and I was eating my breakfast, and my wife starts asking me, you know, all these questions because she sees me there, and I was kind of like, I'm not really here. <laughs> like I know I'm here, but I'm not really here because I'm knee deep in this in this spreadsheet. It's hard for everyone around us too. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm revisiting a lot of your stuff sort of post pandemic. Cause I think it's interesting. I, I think your favorite book of mine drive, uh, I, there's some really interesting things that I think are around intrinsic motivation that, that feel urgent today. Um, you know, a lot of companies are now competing to offer more fulfilling work. We've got this great resignation going on. Like, I mean, I know a lot of people are just offering more money, you know, and they're trying to just survive this talent war. But what do you think needs to, I mean, there's clearly a whole generation looking for something different in work now. And what do you think leaders need to to pay attention to? Well, I mean, money is important. There's no question about it, but it's always been, and the research is pretty clear on this. It's a threshold motivator. You got to get it right. Uh, it's hard to get it right out of the box, but you know it's a threshold motivator. What what really seems to lead to enduring performance and satisfaction, as you know from that book, it, are autonomy, which is a sense of control over what you do, how you do it, when you do it, mastery, which is are you getting better at something that matters? Are you making progress? And a sense of purpose: are you contributing? Are you making any even some contributing internally? Are you making some kind of difference out there in the world? And I do think that this this pandemic has raise the stakes for all of these things. So for instance, if you look at something like remote work, um, it requires a lot of autonomy, right? <laughs> huge amount. And, and what I think what's irritating to me is, is how for, you know, I, I wrote a book 20 years ago called free agent nation about people working for themselves and working at home. And this is the book that all, was just too early. I've heard you talk about it, right? It's just, all these it's just people, too early. <laughs> you know, all these people saying, Oh no, you can't have like remote work. You can't trust people to do that. Blah, 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 blah. You know, then we do it in in March of 2020. We do it in a week. So I don't think there's any going back to that. I, I think that you that you have to default to organizations now have to default to autonomy. I think that in some ways remote work has exposed once again how impoverished the feedback environment is in organizations. That people just don't have a sense of how they're doing. They don't feel like they're making progress. They're not getting information on how they're doing. And then I also think that in some ways, the great resignation is a little bit of a great reckoning as people just say, okay, what's it all about? You know, it's like, why am I here? What's the point of the exercise? And they're realizing that they want to do something that that matters. And in an environment of just insanely low unemployment, uh, they can make that move more easily. Would you, if you were talking about it today, autonomy, mastery, purpose, would, would you add trust to that? I heard you say that. It seems like that particularly in remote. Uh, I, I think what, yeah. it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. What I, I don't know if I'd add trust to it, but I think that trust is, a, is essential because, um, Part it, of autonomy, some level, I guess. yeah, well, I mean, at some level, not at some level, at every level, autonomy depends on trust. And, you know, and also it's like, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> I think we've. I think what we have to do is, in some ways, flip the default, and I, I'm hoping that that's what the the pandemic is going to do. So flip the default, and basically, let's default to autonomy. Instead of saying, "Okay, you know what? We're gonna the main mechanism we're gonna use in organizations is control," and then every once in a while, if people really prove themselves, we'll grant them a little bit of autonomy. Uh, and I think we we should flip the default and actually start with autonomy. Uh, because I think that we've proven over the last two years that most people can handle it, and by defaulting to autonomy, you're also defaulting to trust. And 
you know, I, I've said this before, and it's and, and it's one of those things that's so deeply embedded in in how we behave and how we see the world that I, I feel like it's worth a, a kind of excavating and, and showing off, which is this, like your starting premises tell you where you're going, right? So if you start with the premise that people can't be trusted, that they are shiftless, that they are lazy, that they will shirk if they're not monitored, that's going to lead you down one path. If you start with the premise that people can be trusted, that they care, that they're willing to do stuff, that leads you down another path. And in my view, that second premise is more accurate. I don't think that everybody can be trusted in organizations, but I think most people can. And so what we have is we have these, it's insane. We have these, you know, let's say that, you know, five or 10% of people actually, you know what, they can't deal with autonomy. They can't be trusted. So we're constraining the 90% for the bad 10%. Yeah. I was just going to say that. I, yeah. I see so many managerial policies that are designed where people focus on the exception or they focus yeah. on the exception that worked. Like for instance, the data is pretty clear that counter offers you make someone a counteroffer, 80% of the people I think are gone within 18 months. But people will point to the one that worked or the one rather than saying, but if you did this 100 times, it's going to fail 80% yeah. of the time. You're pointing to the exceptions, right? They point to the people that can't be trusted as a reason. I that I mean, what you described is our default mode of operation. I actually think it sends Absolutely. a better standard of saying, look, we trust first. But by the way, you violate that trust. And there's kind of no gray area. Yeah, there's no going exactly. back on that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's like, I, but I also think it's a more accurate, I think it's a, you know, if you go around and ask people in organizations, what percentage of people here care about what they're doing or conscientious can be trusted? I think in most places, you're going to be have numbers in 85, 90%. And right. then what we have is we have these policies that are designed entirely to stop that like 10%, maybe it's just, maybe it's even just 5%. And in the process, we're shackling everybody. Right. Well, it becomes a vicious or vicarious circle where like people don't yeah. feel trusted. So then they do stuff. Like we will right. say like, again, in our remote work environment, look, we are flexible. You need to go to a kid's soccer game. You want to do something that's fine. Tell someone where you're going to be, how they can reach you when you're going to be out. You know, if you start just disappearing during work hours, like mm -hmm. you're going to have a very, your team's not going to trust you. Right. So that is you're free to use that flexibility, but but you should be accountable to tell someone, hey, I'm going to be out for two to three hours in case you're looking for me because it's the middle of a, a work day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, again, if we start with trust, if we start with autonomy, I think we're going to be. I think we're going to be way better off. And if we infuse what we do with a sense of purpose, not even saving the world purpose, but just like making a contribution of some kind somewhere purpose, right. we're going to be a lot better. But I, I do feel like like this moment that we're in right now, people are searching. They're ser and, and what they're searching for is not, you know, more and more money necessarily. I think what they're searching they're for getting, is- They're getting thrown that, which I think is confusing yeah. them in some cases, right? Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select.
I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, they're they're searching for something else. They're searching for something different in their lives, uh, just a better way, a better way to live. And yeah, so I, I feel like we're we're at a kind of a punctuation mark right now. But I don't know what happens after the punctuation mark. Well, I, I'm interested. I've asked, I've brought this up with a bunch of people because I'm hearing this from a lot of leaders, and and you're a good person to ask this because of free agent nation and your focus on teams and cultures. So one of the phenomenons we're seeing, and I understand it, particularly the under 35 crowd, right? That generation has tremendous leverage now. We've moved from the command and control where companies control and it's regional based. And if you work in this small town, you're stuck there. And now the pendulum, in a lot of cases, it does swung so far the other way, right? Record low unemployment. Like if you're young, marketable skill, you've got, you know, marketing power. But, But organizations that do well have team goals and structure and and shared purpose. And and there is this free agent nation concept coming into the organization. That is, if you want to be an Uber driver or Lyft driver and only drive when there are spikes and say yes to this and no to this, and like as a free agent, you can do that. But the free agent culture is sort of coming in the organization. People are like, look, I I want what I want. I want to do it. And now I was on this culture panel and this, this woman who is an HR CRO said, well, people want what they want. Employees want what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's great, but that's not being part of a team. Um, so, you know, being part of a team requires some sacrifices in that, like, you know, you can't get everything every day you want it. There's going to be some things you don't want to do. How do you see this sort of, I, I, because again, I think a lot of companies are going to be combined of a core employee base and then free agents coming in and out. But I see the free agent culture kind of coming into companies. And I think it's a really tough leadership challenge. Uh, uh, yes and no. I'll give you I'll give you a yes and no on that. So I think part of it is if you actually talk to employees, I, I, people actually do really like being part of a team, really like being part of a high performing team. And that's something that they value. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things in the last 20 years of that, since that book came out was that exactly what you're describing, which is that inside of companies work, it, it seems a lot more like free agent nation than it did 20 years ago, that, that the difference between corporate America and free agent nation isn't that vast. And I think part of it is actually economics. You know, in a generation ago, two gen- certainly two generations ago, 
the organization would shield a lot of the risk from the individual. And so the individual made this bargain where they were giving loyalty in exchange for security. Now there's been a huge shift in risk to individuals and they have no security. And so the the bargain isn't loyalty for security. It is, you know, talent for opportunity. And it's a very different kind of bargain. And I think that the smart organizations are the ones who, create cultures and places to work where people are doing things that are meaningful, where they feel like they're learning and growing and are part of a team. But I, I wouldn't discount how much people actually like to be on, on um, part of a team. The other thing is like, there's some people who you don't want to hire. If you, if you have a team-based yeah. environment, it's like in sports. It's like in yeah. sports. Sports is a team-based environment. It doesn't mean that every superstar you want on your team. Yeah, you know, and and but also at some level, I would, the other thing that I think we, that's that's happened is that I actually think we're slightly over-indexed on collaborative work and under-indexed on solo work. That I think we default too often to teams. And one reason why people want to have a little bit more autonomy over what they're doing is because they're in an environment on a team, and they're like, "Why is this a team? The team is slowing things down." And I think that the fact that so many, especially in America, with so many things default to collaborative work, that we're losing some of the value of collaborative work because we're we're doing it too too much. But again, I really do think this this moment is so interesting because I think we're sorting that out. We're sorting that out post-pandemic. In the post-pandemic, we're sorting out the question of what should be done asynchronously and what should be done synchronously. We're sorting out what should be done collaboratively, what should be done solo. We're sorting out what the hell is an office for today. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're sorting out all these big questions. Yeah, and and I think look, there's a lot of right answers. You could go fully remote, you could do hybrid which I always say to me scares me a little bit because I think hybrid needs to be a strategy, not the absence of a strategy. And I think for a lot of companies, there's 10 different versions of hybrid, as you said. There, We're coming in 50% of the time. We're coming in Monday and Wednesday. Do whatever you want. All of those necessitate different solutions for how you're going to use the office and what expectations are and, yeah. and otherwise. So I, to me, the only wrong decision at this point is actually not making a decision. I still yeah. think a fair amount of organizations are, are trying to get away with appealing to everyone. Whatever you pick, is not going to appeal to a large chunk of your base. You know, you want to call everyone back into the office. They don't want to come. You want to get rid of the office. They want to, but I think it's better to make that choice and know who needs to move on and who you need to get in than, than sort of making everyone unhappy. We are going to experiment our way to this answer. We're not going to know it. Yeah. And, and I actually think that hybrid is going to become so common that we're not going to call it hybrid anymore, where that each organization is going to figure out What's the best mix of people being together in person and people being remote? And it, it, it's probably going to be more fluid than it was in 2019 or 2009 or 1999. And that this week might be one way, next month might be another way. But I, I really do believe that we will sort it out in part because we're asking, we're, it's forcing us to ask these fundamental questions. Yeah. I, and, and I don't, I don't, I mean, companies will sort it out. I think the problem is their employees want to know can I move? <laughs> Do I have to be near the office? Am I in three days? You know, the, the ambiguity around that, I, I actually think it's better to make some decisions, declare they're wrong and then keep tweaking them than yeah. because there, there's a lot of, first you got to figure out which strategy and then there's executing correctly on that strategy, which is a whole another challenge of, again, if you're using the office just for certain types of work, when people have to come in, you design the office totally different than we're designing it for half the people to be in half the days, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, let's take a quick break uh, for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Dan Pink. Today's episode is brought to you by Text Expander. What can you do with more hours every month? Repetitive typing, little mistakes, searching for answers, 
All these things are taking precious time away from you and your team. With Text Expander, you can take time back and focus on what matters most in your business. With Text Expander, you and your team can keep your messages consistent, save time and be more productive, and be accurate every time. Make work happen wherever you are by saying more in less time and with less effort using Text Expander. Here's how it works. Drop your commonly used content, a thank you note, or a request for a meeting into a Text Expander snippet and give it an abbreviation. Share your snippet with your entire team. Just type a few characters to trigger your snippet and the content expands anywhere you type. It's that easy. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, iPad, and listeners of this show get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more. That's text, E-X-P-A-N-D-E-R dot com slash podcast. And we're back with Dan. All right, so now I want to get back to that quote that, that we started with, uh, and we'll, we'll get to your new book, The Power of Regret. So in this book, I think the essential argument is that if we understand our regrets, we can understand what we value personally and professionally. So what drew you to this concept in the first place? Was it, was it did you have some regret that you didn't yeah. write this book, or, or was it a specific moment? Well, I mean, I think it was a, it was a bunch of different things. I think part of it was uh, where I am in my life, where... I I don't I wouldn't have written this book in my 30s uh, because I didn't have that enough mileage on me. And yeah. now I'm at the point in my life where I can look backward and there's some distance there, but I can also look forward and there's some distance there. And what I realized is that I had regrets and that each time I talked about them with other people, instead of recoiling from that conversation, people leaned in. They wanted to talk about this in a way that I found kind of staggering. They want to talk about your regrets or their regrets. They wanted, they wanted to hear my regrets. They leaned yeah. into that. And by my sharing and disclosing, that was almost an invitation, permission for them to do the same. And you ended up having rich, non-BS, non-superficial conversations, uh, which I think is something that, that people are really are really looking for today. Rather than this performed perfection of social media, people want some degree of authenticity in the conversations that they have with people. The other thing is that maybe as you know, Bob, the, 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 the books that I've written are look at big bodies of science. And there's a lot of research on this question of regret. And what it tells us is that pretty clearly is that human beings are programmed for regret. It is part of our cognitive machinery. Everybody has regrets. Everybody has regrets. The only people without regrets are five-year-olds, people with brain damage, and sociopaths. The rest gonna, of us. Have, I was just going to say narcissists. Yeah, that was. Yeah, good. yeah. The rest. <laughs> the rest of us have regrets. They make us human. Well, it's the emotional version of touching the stove and getting burned, right? Isn't that the? Sure, that's part of it. That's, yeah. Like, but but it's a great point because that's a great point. Okay, so let's let's lean into that a little bit because some of it has to do with. I mean, forgive my constantly using this ridiculous phrase over-indexed, but let me use it again. We, we are over-indexed on positive emotions. Like we've been seduced, especially here in the United States, that we should be positive all the time, that positive emotions are, are the only thing that matters. And here's the thing. Positive emotions are great. They make our lives better. We should have a lot of positive emotions. But if you have only positive emotions, you're toast. You're, and why are, you, why are you toast? Explain what you mean by your toast. Okay, like okay imagine if you're unable to feel pain. Yeah, yeah. You burn your hand on the stove. Imagine if you're unable to feel fear. You don't get out of a burning building. I mean, that, those are the most mundane, primitive examples yeah, of it. Yeah. 
but but the thing is about this particular negative emotion, regret, it is our most common negative emotion. It is our most common negative emotion. And you have to say, well, why is that? Why is that? Are we programmed to be miserable? No, we're programmed to survive. And so regret teaches us something. To learn, yeah. Regret, regret is our most instructive and transformative emotion. And so this, this philosophy out there of no regrets, where people say, oh, I don't have any regrets. I don't regret a thing. Oh, yeah. That's dangerous. That's delusional. <laughs> it's also not true, right? Of course, it's performed. But, but also, if they believe that themselves... They're not learning anything. They're not growing. And so the way that we reckon, so if we reckon with our regrets properly, yeah, it is the most instructive emotion that we have. That reckoning with our regrets properly, not ignoring them, not wallowing in them either, but actually using them as signals for our thinking, that it is it is our most transformative emotion. And it can help us make better decisions. There's a huge amount of evidence of that. It can help us perform better at work and at school. It can deepen our sense of meaning. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is, you know, again, in a, in a very evidence-based way is say, whoa, we've gotten this wrong. No regrets is a ridiculous philosophy. What we should be doing is reckoning with our regrets in a sensible way because they point the path to a good life. Well, I think you alluded to this, but I mean, social media plays a huge part in this, right? Because it is it is a curated 5% of everyone's highlights when you're then you're reading all the data that everyone is depressed and, you know, in therapy and, and, and breaking <laughs> records. So the two things just don't correlate, uh, right? People aren't they're not talking about this stuff on, on social media. They're they're posting their their highlight reels. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the thing is, it's like I mean, I, you can you can understand that, but but again, let's just get out of this purely performative, purely performative mode in our lives, and let's just start like living lives and being honest with each other and ourselves. Um, and that actually ends up being far more liberating and far more effective uh, than than anything else. And the, the the other thing is like again, I just want to go back to this idea of like that that regret is widespread. I mean, it is widespread. That's one of the things that we have to understand. That I collected, you know, I put up a website called the World Regret Survey, and it yeah, was, I was just about to no, ask you about that. With no promotion. <laughs> We yeah. collected, we're up to now 17,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. It's crazy. Well, that was, I, I was going to ask you that. So what are some of the things that, that you've learned from the answers? What did you ask people and what are the trends? I, well, what I asked people was, um, please describe a uh, significant regret you have. And that was it. Got it. So you didn't, you didn't, it's free form. You didn't taxonomize it or anything. Well, great question. So I actually did two different pieces of research. One of them was a piece of quantitative research, the yeah. American Regret Project, where we did a very large <laughs> sample of uh, 4,489 person public opinion poll about regret. And what we found was that 82% of people experience regret, at least occasionally. And we said it, and we personally asked the question in a way that we didn't say the word regret. We said, do you ever look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? Or how often do you look back on your life and ask whether you, and, and, and wish you had done things differently? Is there a correlation between age and regret? There is. Well, there's one particular correlation, and that has to do with the, the core distinction in the architecture of regret, which is the difference between regrets of inaction and regrets of action. Oh, that was the and, next question I was going to ask you. <laughs> and that, and that regrets of uh, around age 20, and we found this in our quantitative research, around age 20, people have the same amount of action regrets and inaction regrets. 
But as people age, inaction regrets absolutely predominate. The deathbed ones are all inaction, aren't they? Well, I mean, I'm a little skeptical of deathbed regrets, but 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 if you have this massive sample of regrets from different stages of life, what you find is that different countries, different genders, different races and whatnot, what you find is actually an incredible universality in the regrets. Uh, so, for instance, um, in, in the a- academia, there typically would be... Um, the way that regret researchers have studied it is they, they want to look at the domains of life. So they say, oh, I regret not working hard enough in school. That's an education regret. You know, I uh, uh, so education, career, relationships, family, health. And what I discovered in going through these these thousands and thousands and thousands of regrets is that something else is going on here. And this is, this is your answer to your question of what do people regret is that. The domains of life are interesting, but they don't tell the full story. The full story is one layer beneath. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So I have in my I have in this database of regrets lots of people who regret not asking somebody out on a date. I really liked Fred or Maria and I wanted to ask him or her out and I didn't do it. They regret that years and years later. For people who went to college, regret not studying abroad, not taking a chance in studying abroad. I, I think I could start a travel agency catering to people who regretted not studying abroad in college. They don't realize that that's a rare window and it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. So you've got that. Okay. So that's an education regret. The other one's a romance regret. Then I have people who regret uh, not starting a business, huge numbers of people who regret starting a business. I have some people who regret starting businesses and failing for every one of those are 25 who regret not starting a business. So that's a career regret, but these regrets are all the same. Not asking somebody out on a date, not studying abroad, not starting a business. Those are the same regret. It's a regret about not taking a chance. And, yeah. and that's what's going on at the core. That there are that deep down there are these four things that people around the world regret over and over and over again. And one of them is being bold. One of them is taking a chance. You're at a juncture, you can take a chance or you can play it safe. And overwhelmingly, not in every single case, you're at a juncture. You can play it safe or take a chance. People regret playing it safe more than they regret taking the chance. And and it doesn't matter the domain of life. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And which is interesting. I was just talking with uh, Whitney Johnson about this around. I think this is where the pandemic may help some people. When people have something that's good enough or it's safe, particularly in their 40s and they have obligations, it's really hard to give up good for potentially, you know, great. 
And it is moments like the pandemic when good is taken away that you're forced and thrown into to doing some of those things. Absolutely. That's a huge yeah. factor. But again, what I think that regret teaches us once we figure out what people regret is sort of what constitutes that life that you want to lead. And so when we look at the four core regrets, we have foundation regrets, which are regrets about you know, not building a stable foundation for your life. So these are people who regret smoking or not saving money, not working hard enough in school because they made decisions in their life that so instability, have, things that led to instability. Instability is exactly yeah. what it was. That's the that's yeah. the thing that we want. We want some measure of stability. You no, know so we want we want stable and we want risk, right? <laughs> right. But but actually I think those things go together well. Yeah. That is, you need a certain amount of stability in order to take that risk. I think that they work really well together. The other thing that comes out is that is the third category are what are called what I call moral regrets, which are, again, these regrets inevitably begin at a juncture. You're at this juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. People do the wrong thing. Most of them regret it, which goes to our point earlier about trust. You know, at some level, all these moral regrets are heartening because it suggests that we want to be good. Um, so we have regrets about marital infidelity, huge numbers of those regrets about, I can't believe the number of regrets we have about bullying kids in school, people in their sixties and seventies who regret bullying kids in school mm -hmm. 50 years ago. Um, and then the final category are connection regrets, which is where you have a relationship or you should have had a relationship and it's somehow come apart. It could be with parents, could be with kids. It could be with, um, siblings, um, friends, and inevitably what happens is, is that we want to reach out, we want to do something, we want to take an affirmative step to connect, and we don't, and then we regret it. And what it comes down to is that these are the things that make life worth living. Some stability, which gives us a chance to take a risk, do yeah. something bold and grow, doing the right thing and being good and, and, and having connections, and everything else is meaningless. So the people that didn't have stability to begin with you know, is there an income stratification on regret where they just, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. It's a, it's a great question because on foundation regrets, one of the core things about regret is a sense of personal responsibility. So you have an emotion like regret. Let's take the difference between regret and disappointment, right? Disappointment is not your fault. Okay. I might be, I mean, Janet Landman, who taught at the University of Michigan for a while, has this great example of it where she says, okay, so a little girl goes to sleep, little girl loses a tooth, she goes to sleep, she puts a tooth under the, her pillow. When she yeah, wakes up yeah. in the morning, the tooth is still there. She's disappointed, but her parents <laughs> regret right. not, yeah. okay? not doing because it. Because yeah. it's a difference between the, it's the difference. Between, yeah, exactly. It's a difference between agency and responsibility. So with foundation regrets, exactly as you're suggesting, there is a question about how much is your responsibility. Um, and so some of us are born into greater stability than others. And so I think that's, a, and, I, and I write about that. I think that's a very, very fair point. I think that, that, that if you didn't work hard in school or you, okay, let's say you regret not working hard enough in school or not pursuing a more challenging curriculum. Let's say you had a chance to go to college and, but you regret not pursuing a more challenging curriculum. In, in some cases, you don't bear that blame if you went to a terrible secondary school and weren't prepared, or you're the first person in your family to go to college and you didn't know how to navigate it. There's a paradox. It seems like the people with you know higher, more resources, which would be higher income, would probably have more regrets, even though they are probably in a more of a position to do these things, right? We we have numbers on that, and yeah. it's a, it's a great point. So, for instance, 
in the quantitative part of the survey, we asked a lot of demographic questions and we asked uh, education. And the more education you have, the more career regrets you have. Uh, yeah. And that has to do with opportunity. And there's a paradox with opportunity and, re and regret. If you are very well educated, then you might have a whole array of career opportunities and therefore more things to possibly regret. Um, and so regret comes back to regret comes back very much to opportunity. Boldness regrets are about opportunity. They're about I didn't pursue all the opportunities that I possibly yeah. could have. Connection regrets are partly about opportunity. I had an opportunity to have a close relationship with this friend, with this relative, but I blew it. And, and again, one of the things that regret teaches us, and I think it's powerful, and I think you hit on, I think one of the central points in all this research is that if you take these four regrets, some of them are about opportunity and some of them are about obligation, right? We have in our lives, we have opportunities and we have obligations. So if you have a life that is all opportunity and no obligation, to my mind, that's hollow. If you yeah, have a life yeah. that is all obligation and no opportunity, I think that's kind of stricken, re reduced. But our lives, we want the right mix of opportunity and obligation. And, and that's one of the things that regret teaches us is that our, the pursuit of a good life is a pursuit of getting that right mix between having opportunities and fulfilling obligations. But it's interesting. It does seem like the big one. I remember an article was a good, catchy link bait title years ago, and it was like a hospice nurse talks about the yeah. things that people regret the most. And they were all omission. They were all things that people wish they had done, like the really big ones. Obviously, if you lied or bullied, that's something you wish you didn't do. But it does sound like a preponderance in a lot of things you talked about that if people think about it, they're really what they're most likely to regret in the end is the really big things where they didn't take a chance, didn't ask the girl out, didn't take the job, didn't do the thing, right? Foregone opportunities, and this is in, in actions. Yeah. And we, and again, that's what the, the the academic research shows us very clearly. My own research shows us very clearly. Inaction regrets outnumber action regrets, and that's partly because action regrets are easier to repair or do something about. So yeah. if I've treated somebody unkindly, an action, you can apologize. Yeah, I can apologize. I can make amends. Uh, you can also do something that's very psychologically healthy, which you what I call you can at least the regret where you can find the silver lining in it. And, and again, in this database of regrets, we have, I mean, it's almost all women with this thing. It's like, oh, my biggest regret is marrying that idiot X years ago. <laughs> but at least I have these, at least I have these two great kids. Find a silver lining in it. So, and, that, and that can be very, very psychologically healthy. You can't undo an action regret, an inaction regret. You can't, you, you can't go back in time and undo that. Uh, I can't go back in time and undo not studying abroad what I yeah. can do, and this is the thing that's important, is say, God, I feel bad. Feeling bad is a signal to my brain that I need to think about this. What's the lesson this is teaching me? Let me apply this forward and then go travel with my kids or, or give different advice to my kids. Right. Maybe it's I've been telling myself I can't take a month off sabbatical. I'm, I'm giving myself the same logic now that I did then, and, and I should make it happen because then I'm going to regret that, right? Bingo. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so if you could stand in front of different gener, like it, it, I, you have the book, right? But if you had the summary manual that you would say to people, here's what you could do to avoid the biggest regrets in life. How would you communicate that to people in a way that they would understand? Uh, I would do it like this. I would say, when you make decisions, what you should do is you should make decisions and ask yourself, is this going to 
build my foundation? Is this a sensible risk that will allow me to grow? Is this the right thing? And does this help me build closer connections? That you should worry about regretting decisions that violate that. Everything else, don't worry about it. Is a difference between, you know, you know, there's research on, on maximizing and satisficing. Okay. Maximizing yeah. is I'm going to make the optimal decision in every single circumstance. Satisficing is it's going to be good enough. You need to maximize on building your foundation, taking sensible risks, doing the right thing, and connecting with others. Everything else, what car you drive, what clothes you wear, you know, what you have for dinner, all that kind of stuff satisfice. Don't waste your time on that. And so this idea that we should, there's also an idea that we should try to reduce every regret what we have. I mean, maybe I regret last night having pizza for dinner. Who cares? Well, that would right? also assume that you can make the right decision every time, which is completely, of course, you know, of preposterous. Course. So what, you yeah. should be, what you should be doing is that you should be, you should, you know, a really good technique is to, is to move ahead 10 years and look back and say, what, how am I going to feel about this decision? And, and really focus hard if it's a decision that it's about your foundation, if it's about your relationships, if it's about doing the right thing, and if it's about boldness. Everything else, you're not going to care. It doesn't matter. And what we want to do is we want to, we, we can't make decisions about everything. We can't maximize everything. So what we need to do in order to lead a good life is focus on the things that actually do matter. And regret tells us that. If we know what, so you said it at the top of the show, if we know what people regret the most, we know what they value the most. That these four core regrets are a reverse image, a photographic negative of the good life. Regret tells us what we value the most. And what we should be doing is pursuing these things and everything else is commentary. Yeah. And so it seems like based on what you say, having that foundation of stability so that you can make a decision that doesn't bring down the house. I think that's the, you know, go, not going abroad is not going to bring down the house, right? You know, giving up your, if you have no savings, getting your kids are all in school and giving up your job and no income to try the startup, it could bring down the house, but you could learn so much from that, that, that you're okay right. with it. But it, but it seems like if you don't put yourself in a, financial or emotional stable position to be able to take some of these risks, that that's where you get into trouble. I think that's part of it. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I, I also think that the, um, again, not all these risks are, have financial implications. Right. So a lot of these boldness regrets are regrets about, I'm, I'm not joking around about this, asking people out on dates. It's, like, I would say fear. They, why, why don't people go abroad? Is that just fear? If, if you have, I mean, I'm telling you a lesson on this, if there's somebody you like and you want to ask him or her out, go do it because you might get a no, but you'll know, you'll, at least you'll know, <laughs> you'll know. And you're going to, and you're going to regret that. I have a lot of regrets again, about speaking up huge numbers of regrets about speaking up, not speaking up or speaking up about, about not speaking not up, speaking up. wishing okay. they had, wish exactly wishing they had spoken up. And, you know, that doesn't require necessarily a stable um, economic foundation. So not all of these, not all boldness is about, you know, taking a sabbatical or, or you know, going out, doing six months to climb mountains. Uh, a lot of it is about your day-to-day -day life. You know, are you going to assert yourself? Are you going to speak up? Are you going to ask out that person? You know, the, those kinds of things. And, and people really regret not doing that. And I really think understanding that they're not alone in regretting that might give them the moxie to next time speak up. So, so Dan, what's a good example from your own life or career of a regret that is tied closely to something you value? I would say, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that really bugs me is when I was younger, certainly the first 25 years of my life, 
I was just not a very kind person. I really regret like not being kind. So if there's someone who was like in a group being left out, I didn't give a shit. If there was somebody who, you know, if, if I was rude to somebody, I didn't care one way or another. And I look back on that and I'm kind of ashamed of myself. Uh, I really regret that. And, and I think that I've come to that, that sort of thinking about those regrets have made me think, try to become a more kind person, uh, someone who treats everybody with greater kindness and and that value i think has has come up that I, I value that more in part because of those regrets what made the shift for you did someone point that out to you or what was the what was the sort of transition point in that for you i don't know if there was an epiphany there i think what yeah. i came to do it's a great question i, I think i i don't know I, i'm too slow to have epiphanies <laughs> but i think that over time I, I started thinking about the people who i admired and what did they have in common? And the people I admired overwhelmingly were kind. And it was it ended up being something that I valued in other people and valued in the way that they taught that in the way that they they treated me. And also, again, I want to come back to this idea of mileage. That is, you can, you know, if you're 20, it's hard to look back on what you did when you're 19. You don't have enough distance from it. But when you're 29, you can look back on what you did at age 19 and say, oh, I'm not sure that was so cool. Yeah. It also seems like it matters how much time, you know, these financial planners do these exercises. If you had a month to live, a day to live, and somehow when you have a week to live, your focus about what's important and not important becomes much sharper, right? Because they say, who do you want to spend time with if you had a year to live or an hour to live? Like, in theory, it should be the same answer, but it's interesting how that time changes it for us. Exactly. Exactly. There's no, I mean, limited time gives us a sense of urgency that we don't have in our, in our day-to-day lives. Right. And and so maybe that's a good framework for people too. like assume like I might not have the chance to do this again. Like, you know, so if I don't do it now, it's now or never, because I think that's probably one of the delay tactics. Well, oh, oh, I, I can answer it another time. I can do this another time. And then that happens time all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. I mean, I mean, I have stories about that in the book. There's a woman who had a close friend. They grew up together. They were very, very friendly. Uh, they um, they stayed friends as as young adults. Then their lives started moving on. They sort of drifted apart. This one woman, Amy, discovered that this friend, her friend, had um, pretty serious cancer. And she said, "I'm going to call her. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to call her. I'm going to reach out." And um, she, the day that she reached out, the woman, her friend, had died earlier that day. Um, and so, you know, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible feeling, um, feeling if only I'd reached out and that guided this woman in her later behavior. And I think that if one, you know, uh, certainly in that realm, one of the takeaways for me is uh, seriously is always reach out. I think that's a lesson. If you're thinking, oh, I haven't talked to, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I was really friends with da da da, and I haven't talked to them for a while. Should I reach out? Yes. If you're asking yourself whether you should reach out. You should reach out. And that's a good for everyone listening right now, right? There's probably one, two, or three people in your in your mind and and uh you know, write it down, make a plan to reach out. It doesn't seem like the, no one will regret that. That that is I have to say that is um I'm allergic to hyperbole, but I have to say that is unequivocally <laughs> true. It really is the case that that we should always reach out. And what's interesting is that in these interviews that I had with people who were skittish about reaching out. Okay, so when people certainly on these connection regrets, people are skittish about reaching out and they say, oh, it's going to feel really awkward and no one's going to care. They're not going to care. And what the research tells us is that 
it's not awkward and people do care. And then if you just flip it on them, I say, oh, you know, I really need to reach out to, you know, I've been meaning to reach out to Jane and I miss her and da, 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 da. And, but it's going to be really awkward and she's not going to care. And, I, and then I say, well, how would you feel if Jane reached out to you? People say, I would love it. I would yeah. be so touched. It would be the greatest thing. And I'm like, uh, you're answering your own question. All right, Dan. Well, book's out today. Uh, where can people find the book and learn more about more about your work? Uh, they can. Well, I'm hoping that uh, supply chain problems notwithstanding, <laughs> they can find the book wherever books are sold uh, online or online and or in bricks and mortar stores all over North America. Uh, you can also find out more at Dan Pink, D A N P I N K dot com. All right, Dan. Thanks for uh, coming back on the show. Always fascinating to talk with you and uh, readers don't miss the the power of regret uh, available today wherever books are sold. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. All right. You can learn more about Dan and his books at the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.